Good afternoon and welcome everyone. I'm Maureen Conway, a Vice President at the Aspen Institute and Executive Director of our Economic Opportunities Program. It is my pleasure to welcome you to today's conversation, Democratizing Work, the Role, Opportunities and Challenges of Worker-Owned Cooperatives. Uh, this conversation is part of the Economic Opportunities Program ongoing Opportunity in America discussion series in which we explore the state of economic opportunity in the United States, um, the issues, challenges, and um, obstacles workers, businesses, and communities face, and ideas for change. We are grateful to Prudential Financial, Walmart, the Cerdna Foundation, the W.K. Kellogg Foundation, Bloomberg, and the MasterCard Center for Inclusive Growth for their support of our Opportunity in America discussion series. Today's event is the first in a three-part series, Employee Ownership's Moment, Conversations to Advance Policy and Practice. Um, and in this series of conversations, we're gonna be looking at the different models of employee ownership, their strengths and limitations, and what we can, uh, what we can do to uh, encourage more sort of employee-owned enterprises. Um, there are many forms of employee, own, uh, employee ownership. Today's conversation is really focused on uh, worker cooperatives. We're gonna talk about ESOPs, employee ownership trusts, um, other forms of equity and profit sharing and upcoming events. So stay tuned for that. But today we're really focusing on, on worker cooperatives. Um, and I'm really glad we're starting this series with worker cooperatives. It is November. November is voting season, um, sort of a time to celebrate really democracy. Um, so it's great to begin this conversation series with um, uh, focus on worker cooperatives as the principles of democracy and dem democratic member engagement are really sort of foundational to the cooperative movement. Um, and at a time when people are expressing concerns about the resilience of our democracy, both in the US and, and in democracies around the globe, it's useful really to think about the, the insights that the cooper that cooperatives can offer regarding responsibilities and benefits of democratic engagement. Um, but more central to the concerns of the economic opportunities program typically are issues of um, economic inequality, wage stagnation, deteriorating job quality, um, and other sort of economic headwinds that have really taken a severe toll on workers' livelihoods and on the health of um, families and communities across the country. So these economic challenges, though, are, are really kind of connected in a way to these challenges of democracy, the tide of inequality and the concentration of wealth and power in the hands of a few um, really undermines people's faith in democracy and in institutions and in the government's ability to really advance the broad public interest rather than sort of the narrow so-called special interests. Um, so cooperatives really inspire us to be different, offer a path to sort of more shared prosperity, um, to workplaces where power is shared, participation is encouraged, um, and community health is promoted. So uh, what can cooperatives tell us about how work can be organized to be engaging and rewarding for workers, um, while at the same time producing the goods and services people need? Why have cooperatives, you know, kind of remained under the radar screen in the US? Um, and uh, what kinds of policies, training, financing, other supports could really help the cooperative movement expand and flourish and really contribute to um, a healthier economy and society. So we have lots to talk about today. We have a great set of people to talk about it with. Really excited about this conversation. Um, I'm just going to do my very 
quick review of our technology. All of our attendees are muted. Um, we're delighted to get all of your questions. Thank you to those of you who submitted questions in, when you registered. Um, please use the Q&A button to submit questions. Uh, we will try to get to as many as we can. Um, we know that many of you also have experience um, in, this, in this field. Uh, we really encourage you to share your, your work, your ideas and thoughts in the chat. So please um, share your resources there in the chat. Uh, we, we, um, we will be grateful to, to hear from you about that. Um, we always appreciate people's feedback on our events. At the end of this uh, session, there'll be a feedback survey. Please do take a moment to fill it out. Let us know what you thought and how we can do better. We always are trying to do better. So really appreciate you giving us your feedback. Um, uh, we encourage you to also tweet about this conversation. Our hashtag is talk opportunity. If you have any technical issues, please put a note in the chat or you can email us at eop.program at aspeninstitute.org. The event is being recorded and will be shared via email and posted on our website um, and closed captions are available. Please use the CC button at the bottom of your screen if you'd like to avail yourself of them. Okay, so that's that. Now, um, I am very sorry to say that JJ McCorvey um, is actually not joining us today. So um, you are unfortunately stuck with my face still staying on the screen here. Um, but no worries, because we do have all of our amazing panelists. And let me do a quick sort of names to faces introductions of them. Their bios are on our website. I encourage you to take a look. They're amazing. But in the interest of time, I'm not going to read them to you. Um, so with us today, we have Hilary Abel, co-founder and chief policy and impact officer at Project Equity, Sarah Chester, co-executive director of the Industrial Commons, uh, Esteban Kelly, executive director of the U.S. Federation of Worker-Owned Co-ops, uh, and Stacey Sutton, associate professor of urban planning and policy and director of applied research and strategic partnerships of the Social Justice Initiative at the University of Illinois, Chicago. You win the longest title. Um, <laughs> thank you all so much for, for spending some time with us this afternoon. Really excited about this conversation. And, um, and let's just kind of jump in. And Esteban, I'm going to start with you to kind of give us, tell us a little about the Federation of Worker-Owned Cooperatives and give us a little sort of lay of the land of uh, worker-owned co-ops in the U.S. But also, you know, it would be great to hear a little bit about you know, what kind of moved your heart to kind of get you involved in, in worker co-ops? Um, so, yeah. Thanks so much, Maureen. Um, very excited to be in this conversation with this group of people. Uh, of course, because we are the only national grassroots membership-based organization for worker-owned cooperative businesses and the nonprofits and some of the CDFIs that finance cooperative development, um, most of the people on the panel or many of the participants are actually my members. So it's it's always a funny thing uh, to be describing what we're doing to, to our own members. Um, so we have been around since 2004 to, to kind of steward the cooperative ecosystem um, and to, to really help to build one up, um, to remove barriers that are in the way, whether that's on the policy side or uh, uh, in terms of financing cooperatives, um, expansion and development, um, but also building some of that infrastructure out. So actually fostering technical assistance, um, education and training, leadership development, government relations, and working in coalition with people in movements for social, racial, and economic justice, or um, in coalitions actually with technical assistance um, partners who are really working to build out 
um, community economic development and, and workforce development, especially at the local level. Um, we're also connected to a global and international community of other people involved in um, what's sometimes called the social solidarity economy. And um, in addition to being on the um, in, in leadership here with the Worker Co-op Federation, I'm, I also have the privilege of representing the U.S. on the international um, board called uh, of an organization called CICOPA, which is the it's the International Association of Worker Co-ops. Um, and I say that because it it sort of um, represents the different kinds of relationships that we foster um, in a community of practice that is worldwide. Um, there's millions of worker owners um, all around the world and, and only thousands of them in the US. And so we have so much to learn from our, our, our colleagues overseas. Um, and around the world, there's a lot of, um, I guess, differentiation in when were some of these different ecosystems uh, formed? When did they come to maturity? What kind of sophistication um, do they have in different parts of the world? And what can we learn from the kind of support that they had uh, working with government, working with philanthropy, uh, working at the grassroots, working even with um, with labor movements, other labor movements, um, especially unions, in building out um, the sort of robust ecosystems that we see in other parts of the world. So we're, we're here to, to head that up here. Um, I saw there was already a question in the Q&A um, about cooperative development. And that's that's one of our main roles is that in in a very complex and busy ecosystem um coast to coast we want to uh, make it a little easier for people to cut through all the noise and just find like a, a starting place <laughs> um a clearinghouse to answer um and collect basic questions and do some of that wayfinding so all, all of those other organizations are, are members of the worker co-op federation um we have a sister nonprofit called the Democracy at Work Institute. Um, and so between the, the two of our organizations, we um, often do a lot of referrals out to other um, elements in the ecosystem uh, and, and building out this work. To your other question about my own passion in this work, um, I think a lot of it is that I think about um, not only the, the, the scale of the problems that we're facing, um, and you, you can go as big as climate um, or as small as, as community economic development in a particular neighborhood um, or even around um, issues of gender and race inside of um, families and communities. And I see cooperatives as a solution that's addressing problems. I mean, that's that's what we're talking about ultimately. It's a business form. It's a business model um, that has uh, a long, long tradition, including in the United States, um, a tradition that goes back to the 19th century at least, um, and a way of addressing social problems um, by having people come together uh, democratically, pooling their resources, pooling risk and sharing that, and also sharing reward together. Um, and to me, that, that really lights a fire for me because I get excited about the idea that democracy can be something that not only exists in the political sphere, but that we can actually taste economic democracy in our day to day lives. You know, I work with um, uh, in my own cooperative and with with our members who Monday through Friday or for some of them who are open um, <laughs> on the weekends uh, as well, especially for the seasonal workers. And there's an opportunity to actually exercise democracy to solve everyday um, problems um, in community with other people um, and, and to approach work with dignity, to build out um, enterprises, which we've seen over the last couple hundred years are some of the most powerful tools we have um, 
to, to mobilize resources um, and to connect people economically. So what does it look like to actually put the power of enterprises in the hands uh, of workers and, and everyday people in their communities and then leverage them to, to address different kinds of political, social, or, or, or economic problems. So I think it, it's really helpful that cooperatives exist, especially in the US, in every possible industry. I mean, we're disproportionately in the service economy, the caring economy, uh, healthcare, childcare, um, but we also are in every other part of the economy from transportation to food production, business services, um, uh, manufacturing. And so um, to me, I get really excited about the prospects for economic democracy and how um, we can address um, almost anything that we're that we're facing and things that uh, that 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 interest and motivate um, other organizations and, and people um, around around the country. Great. Thank you so much, Esteban. And Hillary, let me come to you next. You have a long history with uh, cooperatives. Um, and maybe, you know, you can just tell us a little bit about um, how you came to found Project Equity. Um, but also, I know you've been doing research on different forms of cooperatives. And I think it'd be helpful if people had a little sense of, you know, we're really kind of thinking a lot here about worker co-ops, but there's other kinds of co-ops and sort of where, how situate worker co-ops within that broader sort of co-op movement. And of course, you know, um, how did you find co-ops? I don't find, you know, it's sort of unlike, I would say, unlike when I'm talking to people kind of around um, unions and things in the labor movement, and they had somebody in their family who was a union member. And so usually I don't hear people in the co-op movement say, oh, because my, you know, grandmother was a co-op member or whatever, right? So anyway, I'd just be curious sort of how, how you came to it. Absolutely. Thank you so much, Maureen. And it's great to be here with, with Esteban, Stacy, and Sarah and, and everyone else. Thank you for being here. Uh, you know, my journey to co-ops was pretty experiential. And actually, there's been a lot of serendipity along the way. So uh, kind of fresh out of college, I was really interested in social justice and human rights and was doing human rights work in Central America. And that led me to becoming a worker owner at a worker co-op called Equal Exchange. And I really happened into it through Equal Exchange's interest in supporting peace in El Salvador after the Civil War ended through buying coffee from cooperatives. And my passion became fair trade, but I became a worker owner at Equal Exchange. And that created an incredible, um, just kind of lifelong passion now for, um, for cooperatives. Um, you know, I got to sit on the board. I was a young 20-something, didn't know anything about business, but learned it on the job, got to sit on the board and learn from, you know, the first impact investor ever. The Adrian Dominican sisters were on the board before the term impact investing existed uh, and my fellow worker owners. Um, so personally, I found it very empowering. Um, I also got to work with farmer co-ops in Latin America as part of my work at Equal Exchange. And I got to see the change that they made at a really large scale, which, which fueled that passion moving forward. Um, but my direct work as a co-op developer and the precedent to, to Project Equity, the organization I co-founded in 2014, was um, about 10 years I spent as a co-op developer working with really low-income immigrant women um, from Mexico and Central America in the San Francisco Bay Area. And um, I'll just quickly say that one thing that really fueled my desire to start Project Equity and to be part of the growing movement to make worker cooperatives, um, cooperatives and other forms of employee ownership available to more workers in the U.S. was that in it, at Wages, when I was there, that organization is now called, now called Prospera and continues doing great work. Um, we were developing startup um, worker cooperatives. 
And the, the women workers in those companies, their individual incomes were doubling and tripling because they had full-time work, their hourly pay was better. They also had benefits for the first time. And we did really deep impact measurement. So we actually knew from factual data, actually their tax returns, for reasons I won't go into, we had a unique ability to really understand their fi family finances. And the first year we measured it, their family income had increased by 40%. The last year we measured it a few years later, it had increased by 80%. So what that told me was that the co-op development we were doing was really changing the economies of some of the um, you know, lowest income and the folks with the most barriers to quality jobs in the United States. Um, and that was really my driving passion for starting Project Equity and wanting to look at um, how this type of work could be, could be scaled, if you will, and how more workers, especially low-wage workers, but also middle-wage workers, could be able to become part of really successful worker cooperatives. Um, and at, at Project Equity, just very briefly, we, we decided to focus on converting um, existing longstanding successful small businesses to worker cooperatives and other forms of employee ownership uh, because of the challenges of startups. And I had done startup work <laughs> with co-ops for 10 years, and I still love that work and I'm you know, really glad to see more of it and hoping to see more of it over time. Um, but the conversions work has enabled us to do some things that we wouldn't have done through a startup strategy as, as a field. Um, both are incredibly important. So to, to wrap it up here, um, next year I'll be celebrating 20 years as a co-op developer. And I just have a huge desire, like I know we all do, um, to see this incredibly valuable but underappreciated and underutilized form of cooperatives um, used much more broadly and become a much bigger feature of our um, our workplaces and our economy overall. Um, and finally, Maureen, to your question about sort of other types of co-ops, um, I'll just briefly say, as, as people may know, um, there are consumer co-ops, like the cooperative grocery stores, many of us know. Um, there are consumer banks, or, I'm sorry, uh, consumer banks that are credit unions, essentially cooperatives, our financial credit unions, are financial cooperatives. Um, so you can have consumer co-ops, worker co-ops, business-to-business um, -business cooperatives like Ace Hardware. Um, so essentially the form of working together under the seven internationally recognized cooperative principles can be done in, in many different ways. And we're talking about worker cooperatives today. Um, there's also a Venn diagram that worker co-ops are at the center of that overlaps with employee ownership in other forms like employee stock ownership plans. Um, and Employee Ownership Trust, which Aspen will be doing some webinars in in the near future. And at Project Equity, we promote that full spectrum of broad-based employee ownership. Great. Thank you so much, Hillary. That was terrific. Um, Stacey, I want to come to you. And I think, um, uh, you know, again, sort of a same question of, like, we want to hear a little bit about your work, but also how you came to cooperatives. And, um, you know, there's so much I feel like that people don't really understand about cooperatives, like that there's these different kinds with worker owner, purchaser and so on. But also, I think you, you've done some really interesting work on the role cooperatives have played in the African-American community as well. So maybe you could touch on that a bit um, also. Great. Thank you. Um, yeah. And I'm thank you for inviting me. I'm really excited to be here, especially with this panel. Um, and to, to see Aspen Institute kind of talking about promoting in many ways uh, worker-owned cooperatives, right? So that that in itself, into itself, is is significant. Um, and so my route to this work is 
perhaps in some ways um, somewhat conventional in the sense that it it's a mixture of being a co-op member within a consumer cooperative with a food cooperative. When I was in New York, I was part of the, the largest food cooperative in the country, which is Park Slope Food Co-op. But at that point, I didn't fully understand those distinctions that we're making between the consumer co-op and the worker co-op or producer co-op. Um, it was really when I was doing my early research, my dissertation research, and that was also focused on Brooklyn, in central Brooklyn. I was looking at um, the role of Black-owned businesses in kind of revitalizing central Brooklyn over almost a 50-year period. But I wasn't interested, and people kept asking, well, what size of the business? How are they growing? Well, you know, really getting at that question of scale, and I wasn't really interested. I was interested in the collective action among the business owners and how they formed associations, how they came together and what they were able to do collectively. And it was from that that I realized, okay, some of the limits of what they were able to do could have been addressed if they had a more formal kind of governance structure that allowed them to work together and um, and benefit together, you know, to, to bear the burdens and the benefits more equitably, right? There was a lot of lumpiness in these small businesses. Again, these were really small neighborhood-based businesses, um, majority Black-owned businesses. And although my experience had been that they were very um, kind of autonomous and individualistic in, in, in their enterprise, they would spend a lot of time really thinking together and strategizing together and working together. And so that experience led me to look for other models. And that experience as well led me to the literature in which there is a rich literature on uh, worker-owned cooperatives and cooperatives more broadly. And this was before Jessica Gordon Nemhart's book, Co Collective Courage came out, which came out in 2014, I believe. Uh, so that wasn't out, but once that hit and folks really started understanding it's the first kind of um, economic history of cooperatives in Black communities across the United States, and it starts in the 18th century, actually, right, with, but with far more robust analysis starting the 19th century all the way through, um, I think she gets as far as 2010. So I say all of that to say, my experience in terms of, and my passion, which is very place-based, right? I, I, I'm a professor of urban planning and policy, and I really think about the relationship between, you know, the organizational infrastructure of place, of neighborhoods, of the cities, and, and, and how, how especially marginalized communities, especially Black and Brown communities, are experiencing, you know, the various policies and programs that, that are out there. And so cooperatives became both the, became this way, a lens for me to understand the dearth of policy and, and practice in the United States, right? And, and what could be, right? It became a space for um, imagining the potential for policy and more progressive policy and planning, as well as a space of opportunity that people were actually, even in lieu of some of the policies that exist, uh, that may exist now, people were actually practicing this on the ground, right? It was, it's a way of thinking about, um, it was a way of me thinking about like theorizing the social action on the ground and, and the ways in which even, um, the ways in which people, especially marginalized people are 
able to utilize um, and, 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 and this, this formal structure to, to both get by and get ahead, right? And how we see it in other countries, how we see it in Latin America, we see it in, in Africa, we see it in Canada, we see it all over Europe. And yet in the United States, it's still, it's, it's definitely ascendant now, but uh, it's not quite, it's not where I imagine it could be. So my, my interest and deep passion around worker cooperatives comes from my understanding of them as part of an important social movement, a part of you know, this solidarity economy movement that some of us describe as, as, as in this emergent movement. And so within black and brown communities, it's been a, a, an important mechanism for, and I think Esteban touched on it and, um, and even and Hillary's touched on it in terms of talking about uh, Latin America in a way for folks that may not be able to start an enterprise individually, they've been able to come together and whether it's a formal cooperative or it's a collective pool resources and uh, and collectively benefit. And so there are plenty of examples and I can probably speak to more of them a bit later, but there are plenty of examples of that happening in very formal ways and more informally across the United States. Great, thank you. And that's, um, that's a great lead in I think to you, Sarah, because um, I'd love to hear you talk a little bit about how you came to cooperatives. Um, and and the work of the industrial commons, but also sort of um, about how that connects to your sense of place. So um, and and the work you do there. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, thank you so much for having us. Very exciting to be a part of this conversation. Great, wonderful folks joining today. Um, so I'm in Morganton, North Carolina, which you've probably never heard of. Um, if you have, you get a gold star. Uh, we are um, in hills of the mountains below Asheville uh, community. Our, our county is about 90,000 people. And um, this is where I grew up. And our fellow, my fellow co-executive director, Molly Hemstreet, also grew up here. And we were both fortunate to go off to school and um, came back to our, to our small town. And um, when we were growing up here in Morganton, we were really um, doing very well. We were on like Reader's Digest list of the top 10 places to live. And it was just a great, wonderful community to grow up in. The community that we came back to um, after college looked quite different um, due to a lot of the offshoring that was happening. We're a very large manufacturing community. So one in three people here still work in manufacturing. And there was a stretch of just a couple years where our MSA lost over 40,000 jobs. And so at the height of the recession, we were up to about 17% unemployment and just very, really devastated. Um, a lot of the factories that had 800, 900 employees would kind of just close down overnight. And so people, not just one person, but like entire families were out of work. And, um, when I first moved back to our community, I was working in our county's economic development office and getting to bring a lot of jobs to the community, but also just got a deep understanding of how kind of the traditional system of economic development to go out and compete with the county beside you for a project, um, I think is just kind of fundamentally broken in many ways. And so we would see companies move in and then a few years later they were moving out and just creating a lot of um, 
instability for the people that that live here. And so we really wanted to do something you know different. We wanted to um, have a place where wealth was really truly rooted locally. And so Molly had started the first co-op um, in our ecosystem opportunity threads in 2008. And we started building off of that. Um, so at the Industrial Commons, we now uh, have founded five worker-owned co-ops. And then we have an adjacent 501c3 that provides education and training, as well as a whole suite of youth development programs. Um, so we're really starting co-ops to create quality jobs here, working with other businesses in the region and in the, the manufacturing sector to support other frontline workers and then building the programs and infrastructure that, that make them successful. Great, thank you. So I think I saw one question just for clarification. When was the time period that you said was that job loss in North Carolina? It was, uh, well, a lot of it was around like the 90s and when mm -hmm. we lost a lot of jobs to offshoring. And yeah. then our, our unemployment rate uh, at the height of the recession, I think was about 17%. Yeah, great, thank you. Um, great. So Hillary, let's dive in a little bit more on, um, on a couple of things. So um, one, um, I did want to ask you, I know you've been doing a lot of research on the benefits of co-ops and you started to talk about that a little bit. Um, so just wanted to get your perspective on what you see um, as the sort of real contribution that co-ops can, can make for workers and communities. Um, but there's also a question for you about uh, the characteristics you look for in companies if you're thinking about conversion to a co-op form. So it um, would be great if you comment on that as well. Yes, very happy to. Um, so the benefits of, of worker cooperatives are many, and there is um, a growing body of evidence internationally and in the United States about the benefits of other kinds of cooperatives as well. So there's lots of places we can try to find some links to share in the chat around that. Um, <clears throat> in terms of worker cooperatives, though, I, I see the benefits in, in two main categories, and many worker co-ops will do both, and some will do, uh, you know, kind of be stronger in one or the other. Um, one thing I hear, actually, I'll say, I hear this from all the worker co-ops I talk to, um, is the benefits around um, bringing your whole self to work, finding meaning at work, which is so important now. It always has been, but with the millennial generation and those coming behind them, that's something people insist on and really want and need. Um, and also with the crisis and employee engagement, I think it's like 60% of workers globally are um, either disengaged or like extremely disengaged at work, just not connected to really what they're doing, you know, 40 or more hours a week. Um, so, so quality of life, worker voice, and going beyond voice to actual agency in the workplace is just an inherent built-in um, part of worker cooperatives uh, because of their democratic nature. Um, uh, some of the common benefits that I also see in, in all worker co-ops are is like flexi flexible scheduling. And there's a pretty dramatically lower turnover um, in worker co-ops and in, in other businesses in their industries. Um, then there is another kind of subset of worker co-ops, and I think we're seeing more of these, and I'm very eager to see, see more of these, which are the ones that really do wealth building for their workers, have, have quality jobs. I think all worker co-ops create quality jobs. Um, and, and some are able to cre create quality jobs where the pay and benefits are actually greater than in other, other companies in their industry. And where there's significant enough profit sharing um, through, through patronage, which is the co-op term for profit sharing for members, 
Um, and my work has been with, with low and moderate income workers, you know, folks whose other job alternatives are crappy, which is a technical term I like to use. And I won't go in, I won't spend our time talking about the many crappy jobs that are out there. Um, but just to give a couple of examples, you know, I mentioned the work we did at, at wages where we saw 40 to 80% increases in, in family income. And the better we got as co-op developers, the more we fine-tuned our understanding of the industry we were working in and how to make those businesses successful and how to train and support and coach the, the worker owners to, to govern their business well and, you know, inhabit the, the full sense of that, that work, um, the more, the, the greater the economic impact was. Um, we're also seeing now that we're seeing more companies, mature businesses convert to worker co-ops. We're seeing a lot of wealth building happening in worker co-ops, even in lower wage industries. So I've had the pleasure through our work at Project Equity of getting to know and working with um, a number of companies in a pretty low wage industry, you know, food service, restaurants, cafes um, that have become worker owned, have become worker co-ops and have not only shared profit with their members, but shared it even while they're paying down their transition loan which is something we tell people never to expect because you take on debt to buy a business from its original owner, right? Um, especially if you're low-wage workers who aren't don't have that cash sitting around. Um, but nonetheless, we do often see companies starting co-ops starting to share profit right away. And we've been seeing it in the five five figures, you know, individuals receiving five-figure checks who have never had a savings before. Um, so I could tell more stories like that, but um, the wealth building potential of worker co-ops is, is just so critical given the increase um, in income and wealth inequality and, and the racial wealth gap as well, which has always been a driving motivator for us at, at Project Equity. Um, and I'll just give a very, very quick answer to the question about what we look for in transitioning a business to a worker cooperative. Um, first and foremost, we look for kind of a successful profitable business um, because, the workers in, in a company that's not profitable or that's struggling or is in a dying industry um, may not want and may not do better, probably won't do better if they buy a company that's not not doing well. So we look for, you know, three to five years of, of profitable kind of instability. We look for more mature businesses. So I think it's wonderful to start a business as a cooperative. And it's also wonderful to start one not as a co-op with the intention to transition it. Um, but when we're looking at sort of mainstream businesses that are owned by, you know, one or a few individuals more typical in our economy, we're usually looking at a company that's, you know, seven to 10 years old or more. Um, and the, a great size is, you know, 10 to 50 employees in that business. There is a real challenge in our field that I, I'm going to challenge us all to find solutions to this because it's really important that we do. But it is quite hard to transition micro businesses to worker co-ops. There are some. We've worked with some that do it successfully. But the things that can be challenging, like, you know, the, all the things that the owner did, which is probably everything related to sales and, and management, if that owner is leaving, how do you take over all of those responsibilities? In some groups of workers, you'll have the right capacities and desire to do that. Um, but in many, you, you won't. Um, and also the smaller businesses are also pretty fragile. So, so we, um, there's, we just have a more of a, um, a different conversation when we talk to micro businesses that are interested in this, because um, it takes more to kind of assess the feasibility and if it's really a good, a good fit. So to summarize, yeah, 10 to, to 50 employees, it can be more as well, although most larger businesses will probably look at ESOPs as well, and we're encouraging more of them to do democratic ESOPs and also to consider worker cooperatives. Great. Thank you, Hillary. Um, Stacey, I wanted to, to come to you and ask you a little bit about um, co-ops as a, as a tool for you know, improving racial equity. 
Um, and I was going to ask you about what that looks like in Jackson, which I think there's lots of interesting dynamics in Jackson to, to think about, particularly as we think about our, um, you know, sort of the degree to which um, governments are responsive to sort of the people in the, in the region, if I think about um, some of the issues that Jackson is struggling with now. Um, but also there's a question for you about um, Chicago's community wealth building initiative and how that intersects with co-op development. So you have a couple of places you can talk about for this. Perfect, thank you. Um, and I'll start with Jackson, largely to pivot because I think there's a lot of lure around Jackson and cooperation Jackson and the relationship between the mayor and the cooperative Jackson movement. And it's complicated in terms of, you know, when we think about what's happening in Jackson, um, and when I think about it in the research that I do, I think about Cooperation Jackson as an entity, right? There is a formal entity called Cooperation Jackson. People assume that is a cooperative. It's not. It, it's an incubator, and I think we've heard a little bit about incubators today. So they incubate cooperatives, but it's similar to other incubators in some regards, right? We have um, Cooperative Richmond and uh, Co-op Vermont and Cooperation Humboldt and you know Cooperation Cincinnati. So there are a number of them across the country. I think Cooperation Jackson is 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 um, most known because of its kind of deep commitment to Jackson, Mississippi, which is 85% black and really um, addressing some of the structural inequities that also align with what the mayor, you know, with what Chokwe Lumumba is, is promoting. But they're, they're separate projects, right? I think we often conflate them. So I'm not gonna go too far down the road on that, um, I, but I do think they're doing important work there. Uh, and they're very intentional in terms of not just starting worker-owned cooperatives, but they also have a land pop-up program, community land trusts. They also are doing urban farming. Um, they're also doing mutual aid. They're also doing housing, right? So in that regard, it's part of, it's an ecosystem. And that, that's important for me. And the reason I study it is because the work that I'm doing, Real Black Utopias, is looking at these ecosystems, how it's not just a worker cooperative. Um, and I think this is important in terms of when, when we think about place. I was able to identify, I would say, or I'm focusing on, I would say, eight to 12, um, and they all are cities, right? All of them have Black-centered worker-owned cooperatives. I use that as the primary criteria because my, my hypothesis is that if there's a worker cooperative there, there's some ecosystem. These things don't just emerge, right? Like there's some kind of infrastructure that's supporting them. And as I dug and dug, at, you know, I could find that. And that's what I'm interested in, in terms of the broader ecosystem that undergirds these Black-led, Black-centered worker-owned cooperatives and, and, you know, all of those mechanisms. So I'll, I'll put that on one side. So there are a number of them across the country, not just Jackson, but Jackson is an interesting and important case. Uh, in terms of what's happening in Chicago, and I've been very active in the community wealth building initiative that was recently launched here. And we're very proud to say that we, the city using ARPA funds allocated $15 million to community wealth building. And over the last two years, there's a small group of us, about 15 of us that are part of an advisory committee working with the mayor's office of economic and racial justice 
to define community wealth building because it could mean a lot of things to different people. And we were very kind of adamant that community wealth building in Chicago focus on a collectively owned community controlled or democratically controlled community assets, right? Not just another um, program that focuses on kind of black capitalism, Latinx capitalism. That is, we were adamant that we really have to put co-ops at the center. So these $15 million are to, to build out our, our, our kind of already existing, but really build the capacity of the landscape here in Chicago, focusing on worker-owned cooperatives, housing cooperatives, community land trusts, and, and CIVs, or uh, commercial investment vehicles that are democratically controlled. The first RFP just closed on the 15th. So a bunch of applications came in, and now that people are going through and, and really trying to decide where some of the buckets of money are going. Um, and there are three phases to this initiative. This was phase one. And phase one is, was explicitly focused on the ecosystem. How are we, do we have enough people <laughs> to hold this work? Do we have enough co-op um, incubators, technical assistance providers, accountants, um, you know, everything from those kind of professional services to the, the work that needs to happen in terms of the convening and organizing and connecting that needs to happen. And so the first group uh, kind of um, bucket of resources going to that. The next bucket is really going to pipeline projects, small cooperatives that are either that just started or trying to start. They're putting a bunch of money, a few million dollars into you know, small grants to those. And then the last bucket is really for um, larger, slightly larger cooperatives. Um, and I guess our kind of theory of change is it by investing in these various mechanisms over time, like over the next two to three years, that our capacity here in Chicago will have increased exponentially. And it will not be a city program that will hold this together. If we do it correctly, uh, even if this is a one-time infusion, we will have a kind of more robust landscape, far more robust than what we began with. And so we'll be able to hold that work um, and going forward, we're also bringing together, you know, philanthropy and others. But you know, this this infusion of of public dollars is is really important to catalyze a lot of that. Great, thank you, and it's great to hear about the ARPA money being spent so well. Um, uh, Sarah, let's let's come to you and 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 let's build on this sort of theme about cooperatives in place and. Um, and sort of how you think of some of the benefits. And in particular, I want I, I would like you to comment also on, um, uh, you know, how the cooperatives kind of influence business practices, ideas about civic engagement. And because you are actually one of our job quality fellows, I would like you to talk about sort of some, uh, how it influences job quality in, in your region. Yeah, absolutely. So I think um, the first the first co-op that was started in our ecosystem was was really just like a proof of concept because um, to some of the points earlier I think Hillary was making you know a lot of people in the United States just don't even know what they are understand them and so having that test case to bring people and tour and say look it works 
um, was was huge. Um, and then particularly to be able to prove to people that it can be done at scale um, and in manufacturing. I think the, the slice of the co-ops in the U.S., Esteban probably has the exact number and data, but the slice of the worker-owned co-ops in the U.S. that are in the manufacturing sector is, is very small. And so that co-op now is up to about 60 um, employees. And so to be able to show co-ops at scale, I think has been really helpful in terms of just showing people here in our region that it can be done and that it can be done in a rural area um, has been really helpful. Um, I think the other thing that we've seen is that it's allowed um, it's allowed us to have this infrastructure to bring businesses together, to work together, to solve bigger problems. So one of our co-ops is a um, circular economy co-op. So they're collecting, aggregating and collecting textile waste throughout the region and then transforming it back into a raw material. So it's coming from the factory floor and then going right back into the factory as a raw material, which is a huge um, positive on the environmental side uh, in terms of our values for the manufacturing sector, um, but not something that we that any one individual business would have taken on in our region, but we were able to drive it through those cooperative principles. You know, not everybody that's a part of that project is a co-op, um, but through those core cooperative principles of just finding a problem and working as a group to solve it, we've been able to tackle some bigger issues in our community and really in, in our region. Um, and then we are seeing, to your question, Maureen, a lot of businesses um, start to shift uh, their conversation on job quality because of the work we're doing in the region, which is great. Um, we, a lot of the co-ops we've started, they there's no turnover, people don't leave. And so during this time right now of, you know, people kind of voting with their feet where they wanna be day to day, um, other businesses are coming to us and they're, you know, knocking on our door and saying, what's going on in there that nobody ever wants to leave? So it's really given us a platform um, to, and the fellowship too, Maureen, um, has given us a platform to really frame this conversation around job quality and just the place where we are in the South, we, we have to start you know, soft with that conversation, um, but it usually leads to to great things. And um, so we're excited about how we're kind of gently moving companies along that continuum. And a lot of the businesses we're working with in the broader ecosystem, we hope will convert at some point to employee ownership. Um, but the start of that conversation with them right now is really just around increasing job quality. And and just starting to open their eyes to seeing workers as, as the potential for having more voice and agency. Um, and then just touching on civic engagement, our, um, everyone in our co-ops, we really encourage them to uh, serve in the community in different ways. And so we have folks on the planning board and the zoning commission and parks and rec and our community college board of directors. and. Um, I think they're learning those democratic principles and learning leadership in the workplace day to day. And so then they do have a true hunger to go out and um, exhibit that in the community. And it's just amazing to see you know, these frontline guys that are like running machines serving on, on boards in our community alongside, you know, being a small community, it's typically the who's who that's on boards like that. And so to see them have a seat at the table has been really inspiring. 
Yeah, that's great. I love that. Thank you. I, I love how um, you're talking about the sort of infusing principles into other parts of life, even if it's not, you know, making them cooperatives right away. Um, and, you know, that's a perfect expression of sort of building that democracy to have people who are included in these um, decision-making bodies uh, who, who usually wouldn't be. So that's really great. I really appreciate that. Um, Esteban, let's come to you. Um, uh, you know, I was I had this question for you about sort of innovations that you're seeing in cooperative and um, uh, and to talk about what you're what you're seeing. But there's also a couple of things that have come up in the in the questions that you could also touch on in terms of, you know, the particular sectors that you think are amenable to to cooperatives now or where cooperatives are flourishing um, and in and, and a question about sort of gig work and cooperatives and sort of where you see innovation, particularly around the issues of gig work and how cooperatives can um, address jobs that are organized in that way, typically. Yeah, I think I can thread the needle because I was I was going to speak to some of those things anyway on the innovation question. I mean, that's that is where innovation is happening is is um, by uh, spotting market opportunities and then innovating within that space. Um, so we're definitely seeing a lot of innovation in the rise of platform cooperatives. Um, I founded a platform cooperative recently called Gilded that's actually working with um, freelancers. So um, the ones that we're working with are, are ones who are processing 1099 contracts. Um, and we basically use the power of, of the cooperative form to capitalize a guaranteed payment pool. We confront workers, um, their, their payment within 14 days of the of of their ending their wrapping up their work with their clients. Um, and, um, and so we're addressing the wage theft that happens when, when people freelancers aren't paid in a timely way. Um, but then also by pooling together, all of those, uh, workers, we're able to provide things like worker benefits and access to, um, tax preparation, uh, quarterly taxes, things like that, that often can be tricky to sort of pin down and stay in compliance when you're an independent worker. Um, but then we become through, through Gilded, uh, it's Gilded with a U, uh, becomes the vendor to the client. Um, so it's easier to have timely, reliable tracking of invoicing and collection and all, all that stuff. And so we're using a, a platform um, to, to have a dashboard where the, where the freelance users can actually track um, their progress on their clients and, um, and things like that. So the, I, we're within a broad community, I advise um, the Platform Cooperatives Consortium, um, along with a, um, a dozen other leaders in, in the cooperative space. Um, there's definitely interest in um, things like the drivers co-op um, that launched in New York in initially and then is looking at expanding to other markets around the country um, and really to be a competitor to, to platforms like Lyft and Uber, but one that's actually owned by the drivers um, as well as the staff who are powering the cooperative, um, which brings me to the other innovation, which is around multi-stakeholder co-ops, just the idea that um, you know, it's really a, a 20th century idea that there's these individual kinds of stakeholders and you build a cooperative around that. I think what we're seeing a lot more of now is ways of using the cooperative model to pull together different stakeholders. And that could be employees, that could be investors even um, as, as stakeholders. Uh, we do a lot of work with um, community-based organizations as a model of cooperative development. So they might be doing a lot of work in uh, immigrant communities, or they might be doing work around sustainable food systems. 
And then the way that they're going about that work is by developing cooperatives on the ground. Um, they might actually sit on the board or, or incubate cooperatives before they later on spin off. Um, so there's a lot of space there um, for absorbing capital from, from investors, um, working in, in partnership with local governments, with philanthropy, community-based organizations. Um, sometimes the, the the other businesses within the supply chain can be involved as an investor or a stakeholder in a multi-stakeholder co-op. So there's a lot of innovation happening there. Um, and, and I think generally just pivoting away from, not necessarily away, but, uh, but not being limited to um, existing cooperative statutes as the only way of starting cooperatives. So a lot of innovation is happening for people to take things like LLCs and uh, incorporating as an LLC and then customizing it within your bylaws to be uh, governed in in accordance with cooperative principles. Um, and so that's one of the ways that I think a lot of, especially immigrant cooperatives um, are, are gaining traction because of course, even if you're not um, documented to be able to work in the United States, you could be an owner in a business or a part owner um, in the United States and you can contribute labor to your business in the US. Um, and then of course, receive any kind of um, income that's associated with the, the wealth that's generated from that asset, from that business. Um, so there's a, a lot of different things going. I think that the only other thing I wanted to touch on that, that gets on the other aspect of that question um, is around um, all the work that's happening with um, with sort of climate justice and, and climate adaptation and, and a lot of the work that's happening, there's um, there's been a recent rise in secondary co-ops. Um, so looking at, for example, we have a lot of members in the solar industry, some of the most successful and profitable worker co-ops actually are in the solar industry, whether that's manufacturing or installation. And some of them have formed a secondary co-op where they can uh, collectively purchase the raw materials that might be imported from China or other parts of the world, um, or they might um, collectively purchase um, solar panels themselves, and then through volume, um, they roll out their, their work around monitoring or installation of solar panels or getting involved in the landscape architecture and design. So groups like Amicus um, out in Colorado and in, in the Southwest, um, this is a, a huge um, innovation there. Uh, people who are doing green retrofitting for energy efficiency around um, not just landscaping, but weatherization and, um, and, and windows and just making um, more airtight, especially on the residential um, front uh, buildings so that you're reducing the energy bill, but also you're not leaking all of the, um, the energy intensive um, things that go into to heating and cooling homes. Um, and then unions are getting involved in this as well. So the, the union co-ops movement, which I saw some chatter about um, in, uh, in, in the chat as well, has been um, uh, really figuring out ways to partner better with unions for the different ways that we can support cooperative development. I know that SCIU has been really active in this space, including um, pushing forward legislation recently in California around, you know, what does it look like to make it a little easier um, partnering with the state to create, the, to, to, to move these pools of workforces. They might be concentrated in um, certain industries like farm work or healthcare, um, and to make it easier to actually form uh, contract uh, cooperatives, basically, so that you have pools um, of workers who can then be hired in by by um, by 
by larger organizations. That could be a university or a school or a hospital uh, for different kinds of services. Um, so there's a lot of different uh, innovation, I think, that's happening there and, and looking at integration through value chains um, and then laterally through different industries or, or connecting with, uh, with unions or with the government. Maureen, I'd, I'd love to just add Yeah, to dude, that. that's super interesting. Go ahead, Hillary, jump in. <laughs> it is amazing. I'm, I'm just I'm blown away by the incredible list that Esteban just laid out of amazing innovations related to worker cooperatives. And I'm going to add some more because there is so much innovation happening. Um, you know, the platform cooperatives, I, I think, are really important and also important for, for scale, you know, be able to do something that can reach a lot more workers. And then it introduces some of the challenges of like the um, consumer co-ops. You know, I'm I'm a co-op geek and I'm a member of REI, the outdoor, you know, the consumer co-op, but I haven't even voted for the board ever in my membership time because I don't feel connected to it. I don't know the candidates. So I think it is interesting to think about these very large scale worker co-ops and having those workers make decisions, you know, govern the business together. Um, another version of those um, uh, platform co-ops are staffing cooperatives. So I think you know, folks may, may not be aware that um, external staffing agencies um, or kind of external staff provide a huge proportion of workers in businesses these days. So some of the large tech companies have as many as 40% of their workers who are not employees of their company. They're, they're hired through staffing agencies. So, you know, um, Esteban talked about the really important role of SEIU in that legislation. And the precursor to that was the formation of a a cooperative in the allied healthcare industry called Allied Up that's about two years old now, really started by the union um, and now a unionized worker cooperative with, with real potential to scale to you know, potentially tens of thousands of workers just in, in California. Um, I do wanna say that conversions, converting businesses to worker co-ops was an innovation. It's always been done, but doing it proactively and going out and finding businesses and engaging the mainstream business ecosystem to find companies that are a good fit for this um, is still an innovation. Many of us have been doing it for about seven, eight years now. Um, and it's it's really kind of has a lot of potential for growth. Um, and yeah, and then there's acquisitions and then there's cooperative holding companies like Oberon Cooperative. Um, and, and just finally, I'll say that, you know, the work that Stacy described so eloquently, um, you know, about a half hour ago about the ecosystem work in Chicago is also, I think, a really important edge of the innovation around this work, working around ecosystems in place and also, you know, the industrial commons example. And part of what we're seeing in California of where that ecosystem is leading to now it is policy work. So we have a coalition called Worker Owned Recovery California that is really led and founded and mostly populated by the worker co-op um, advocates in, in California. And we, we passed a law with, with SEIU has been a huge help. We passed the California Employee Ownership Act last year. So I think the, the worker co-op field and the, you know, Esteban's organization, all of our organization, the U.S. Federation also has a wonderful policy director, Mo Mankling, and is doing a lot around, around policy. So that feels like an innovation too. It's always been there as a need and an opportunity, but I think as a field, we're starting to uh, convene around policy opportunities as well. Yeah, great. So that's that was so much, and and also I just want to like compliment the audience who's putting so many interesting things. I can't keep up with it, but they're really putting a lot of interesting stuff in the chat there. So, um, so thank you guys. This is really great. Um, and and that was super exciting and, and fascinating. And Stacy, I'm now coming to you, like as we're kind of getting to the downer question a little bit, which is like, 
you know, it's not all rosy, though. Like, there are still some headwinds out there and some, some challenges we have to address. So um, I'm just wondering sort of how this looks. I mean, you talked about sort of some of the progress you're making in Chicago, but kind of what are the, what are the real challenges that are sort of still need to, need to be tackled? There are many. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I guess before I answer this specific, I mean, and there are some specific challenges. I think the biggest, I would argue, has to do with public awareness, right? In terms of normalizing collective ownership, normalizing cooperatives, normalizing democratic participation within the economy, right? We think of democracy as a, a, when we enter the, the, the voting booth, but democracy within our workplaces, we're, we, we're less accustomed to thinking uh, about it in that context. So the degree to which we are doing this work, promoting the work, um, building the infrastructure slash ecosystems, that is still a challenge in a lot of places. Every place doesn't have um, all that they need to, to really hold the worker cooperatives. But I think we're doing a better job of networking through U.S. Federation of Worker Cooperatives. There, there, you know, there are networks of, of doing this work. But I would also, I just want to add something because the term scaling has come up many, many times. And I think I don't, I don't want to let this go by in the sense that all enterprises don't need to be scaled. Right? Everything doesn't need to be large. If we think about one of the most vibrant cooperative um, economies in the world, it's in Italy, right? The um, Emilia-Romagna uh, region. We often talk about the Mondragon and the Basque region, right? Because it's a huge cooperative. And that, that kind of aligns with the American logic in terms of capitalist you know, pro-growth logic. Whereas in, in Italy, there are a lot of small cooperatives, not, not necessarily tiny, some are tiny, some are medium size, but they um, make up two thirds of the economy in that region. That's huge. Or at least two thirds of all residents are part of those cooperatives. And I guess I think, actually, I think I overstated. Two thirds of residents are part of those cooperatives and about a third of the economy is, comes from that cooperative uh, landscape. So scaling is important and perhaps in certain industries, but it doesn't, that's not the only way to have a vibrant kind of cooperative landscape. You know, you can be a small enterprise, not everything. And, and when we think about non-cooperative, think about conventional businesses, many of them don't work. Many of them uh, don't succeed. Many don't meet scale, right? Um, and that is uh, just to bring it full circle. When I was doing my research, that's what, I, you know, I was in conversation with some um, behavioral economists, and they were befuddled by this notion that these entrepreneurs in this area of Brooklyn that was called uh, like the Black Fashion District, that they actually wanted to remain small. They, they were comfortable doing the work that they were doing in community and, and you know, in the various industries. They, they didn't have this aspiration to be the largest. And you know, while that's befuddling to, I guess, a conventional economist, it wasn't to me because the, what they're doing, their, their passion for their work, their passion for community actually had bounds, right? We, we don't vote for REI, I too am a member, because we don't know who's, you know, we just purchase. We become just the purchasers, even though we're members because it's so large. And again, so I'm just putting that out there because What's happening in Chicago is um, the 
they're kind of hopefully shoring up of all of these really relatively small, but super powerful. It's super important work around cooperatives, right? And 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 they're getting national attention. Shy Fresh Kitchen, which is a work around cooperative started by five um, uh, black formerly incarcerated uh, women. That it's got national attention for the work that they're doing, right? And uh, and now they've brought on a new worker owner and so forth. It's small, but how important is that to have a place where five formerly incarcerated folk can own their own enterprise? They're now making, I think it's they're up to $30 an hour, right? Where they wouldn't be hired in other enterprises. It doesn't have to be a huge beast, right? So um, yeah, I'll just end there that, that, you know, I think part of the challenge is changing our logic in terms of what success means. So when we promote these, we're promoting the, both the possibility and the importance of, of, of them, the ones that are small and the ones that are large. Yeah, that's really, I, I love that. And I want to do a little follow-up with you because, um, so the thing that's in my head is sort of, you know, is it size or is it Sure. And the reason I say that is because I'm, you know, I'm thinking, so I'm a REI member too. And I, of course, have also not voted. And I see people in the audience are the same, like none of us vote for this, right? So, but I feel like, you know, I'm I'm not really connected to you, Stacey, or you, Hillary, as an REI member. And we sort of share our REI members, right? Like, um, you know, and, and, I, and I was thinking about that in contrast to, like, I went to, I first visited Cooperative Home Care Associates in New York in 1992. And they're like, oh, you know, we're like, I don't know, 100 mem you know, worker members now and we can't get any bigger or we'll lose our culture. And then I visit them like, you know, like years later and, they're, you know, now we're 2000, but maybe we can't get any bigger than this. I mean, it, it, it was funny. And, you know, I visit them like 200, 500 and they're saying, oh, but we've reached the limit. But then they didn't. And I think it was because as they grew, they were so intentional about how do we think about that culture and the connection among the worker members within this within this. So I'm I'm just kind of thinking about the role of culture um, in terms of the the growth of cooperatives and also sort of how people are are thinking about um, you know the influence of cooperatives in their in their region. And then just another bit of follow-up for you on that. So so Stacey, I was hoping you could comment on the, the culture aspect, but also there was a question about um, policymaker engagement, sort of like how do you engage kind of the mainstream policymakers in supporting um, cooperatives? And, and I was thinking there might be something that connects to your original point of just needing to raise awareness around this, yeah, but would yeah. love to hear I your mean, thoughts on that. Um, I, I think Sarah raised her hand as well in terms of, I imagine you want to respond to the culture, but that's important. I think you, you're, you're spot on in terms of how do you maintain culture? And that is a question that I think all enterprises have as they try to grow and just re or just sustain themselves, right? Is it the size or the culture? And they go together in many ways, right? They're not coterminous, but they're they're aligned. As you know, you have to be very intentional in terms of maintaining that that culture. And we learn that a lot from tech industry, right? In terms of what what that means and how how much can we proliferate and and expand and still maintain the the elements that are important. We, we, we're seeing now, I think it's, um, what is it called? Somebody help me. In, in New York, the kind of franchise, there's a franchise uh, cleaning. Brightly, yeah, Brightly. they're actually yeah. on our board. Thank you. Yeah. Okay. 
you want to speak to them because that that's well, a that's way just... in which they're expanding and and ex but trying to maintain that local culture. Um, so it's definitely possible. I just think the pro growth logic that it does it it it, it um it obfuscates that like it's just like let's just grow the best the important what's important is I think you know more revenue. I think the challenge is even deeper than that, which is uh, we feel acutely, which is that the smaller the project is, the less attractive it is for anyone to go in and do the business of supporting them. I mean, this model, we, we don't have the government support we need for cooperative development generally. And then most of our members who do cooperative development, I mean, you're looking at firms that have got to have at least 15, maybe 20 people. And even those are considered too small to be worthwhile unless they're in an industry that's got a high enough margin. And so we're the ones left, you know, answering the phone or responding to the email and coaching along. And it's like, where are the, where are the, where are the subsidies for that? Whether that's philanthropically or from the government. Um, because there are, I will tell you, I mean, you're even seeing in the chat that people are like, hey, I'm actually trying to start a small thing. I'm trying to start my own. Who is there to support them, right? Like, so that's the challenge that we face right now, which is a much bigger, I think, than like a philosophical disposition to are we supporting large or small or franchise or, you know, what, like, what, what does that vision actually look like? It's something that's very technical. And I think beyond you know the general resources of 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 groups like what we offer at the worker co-op federation there is this question of co-op professionals that you know finding a lawyer in your state or jurisdiction that can help you with your incorporation and that isn't spooked by the cooperative model finding an accountant that can actually work with you i mean we are hitting the last of our all the accountants that we've referred people to are like, we're, we're full, we can't work with more, right? So now we're facing a challenge where the field is growing, it is outpacing our capacity to be training cooperative lawyers and accountants, being able to connect those dots and, and to actually say, well, who is in a position to um, to plan to make sure that we are building up that next cohort? You know, we can do our job of building up leaders from within cooperatives or advising. You know, these are the kinds of projects or these are the kinds of fields where uh, where there is more need or where innovation needs to happen. But that's a bigger kind of question, and it's only really in spaces like this where we can come together um, to to start to figure out like what's it going to take to get over that hump. Um, and I, I know that we're almost out of time, so I'll just mention that that for us, that's a big part of why uh, we've made a hard pivot. And, and thank you for for shouting this out, Hillary, um, toward doing more advocacy and working much more closely with state, county, municipal, and federal government. Um, not just legislatively, although of course we've done a lot of work. Um, even just in, uh, recently, anything that's gaining momentum, like the Chips and Science Act, we're like, well, what what aspect of cooperative business can we include in this? And we absolutely did. We worked with. Congressman Jamal Bowman to get elements of that embedded in there. Um, but really like working with government agencies themselves, um, the Small Business Administration um, to remove barriers that currently exist. I mean, we don't qualify for 7A loans. You know, why is that stuff there? We all understand that that the benefits um, of, of the cooperative business model uh, economically, in terms of racial equity, in terms of, of sustainability, all of these things are there. So why is it that we still have um, this legacy of a million and one barriers toward the cooperative model. Um, so how do we actually figure that out and, and capitalize this model um, and and uh, and make sure that there is the, the bench of technical support that's that's needed there? Yeah, Sarah, I want to let you jump in here on the on the culture question. Um, and then we'll do, a, if we can, just a very fast lightning round of like one final thought for the audience. But Sarah, go ahead. Yeah, absolutely. I 
I couldn't agree more with, with you, Dr. Sutton. I think um, being on the ground here in the factory every day, like when you get to this certain size, you do, you see it start to like erode the culture. And I think that's part of the benefit of um, having this ecosystem like we're building out. We often find ways for, instead of get, getting co-ops bigger, 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 we look to start the next one. So. Um, our first three co-ops that we started all were struggling finding good bookkeepers, so we just started a bookkeeping co-op. So I think that's the advantage, again, of being in place. And then I think to your point, Esteban, about like where's the support for the co-ops, I think that's where we've seen our strategy of layering sector and place has been really helpful because if you can go deep in a sector and in a place, then you've got the sectoral expertise to help make the co-op profitable and successful. Um, on top of being able to go deep in place. So I think just amazing thoughts everybody sharing. It's so exciting to hear everybody's conversation. Yeah, great. So, okay, so we're gonna do one last, like, you know, 30 seconds. What's uh, either something you didn't get a chance to say that you were really hoping you would get a chance to say, or just one final thought that you wanna, wanna leave our amazing audience with. And Sarah, I'm gonna start with you. Great. Um, I think just, the particular like difficulty of doing this work in the South. Um, and so if there are folks on the call that are interested in talking about that with us, I think there's just a real lack of like consciousness in the South where, you know, there has been no real, like, unfortunately, you know, not a lot of union presence and just being some of the least unionized places in the country. So I think if there are people on the call that want to talk about that, uh, please reach out and happy to talk about like doing this work in the rural South. Excellent. Great. Um, Stacey. Sure. Um, I, I think the last thing I want to say is just a, somewhat redundant in that I, I, the ecosystem, we can't, I can't really emphasize enough the importance of the various elements and really investing not just in the cooperatives, but that bench that, that Esteban uh, mentioned. Um, you know, a lot of the, the resources that are coming from the city, we were very intentional in saying we have to build Chicago's bench. There's a lot happening, but we want to strengthen the bench. We want to introduce this to more people so that they can build their capacity, whether it's in cooperative lawyering or accounting or co-op development, whatever it is, more people, that public, that idea of public awareness is important because it, it allows people to kind of both learn the technical skills, but also if they're not involved in it, at least they know this is a thing, right? They know that this is possible. And so they won't kind of limit limit um, what's possible in their whatever their professional roles are. Let's say in in finance or something. Um, yeah, I, I just want. I think that's important. You're really thinking about how we are building and incorporating more people into this work in whatever element. It doesn't mean you have to be a worker owner. Okay, I love that. Sort of, it takes a system and thinking interdisciplinary. Um, Hillary. Yeah, I love that. One thing that everyone can do to create more co-ops, and we need more small co-ops, we need more medium, we need more large, we need all of that, um, is get involved in, in advocacy for cooperatives. Um, and we see three things we'd like. We work with local governments and we're working with state and federal, as, as many of us here are, to do. One is raise awareness. Use the engines of government and funding from government to raise awareness to fund technical assistance and fund cooperative development. We need a more robust co-op development sector with the ability to do high touch co-op development as well as less intensive co-op development. 
Um, and then also just embed this into all of the things that government does for businesses, remove barriers to co-ops. And um, I think to be successful in our advocacy work, it's great that we're collaborating with other forms of employee ownership with the ESOP community, which is much bigger than the worker co-op community and with the cooperative community, which is much bigger than the worker co-op community. So I'll leave you with that. Thank you. Esteban, last word. Yeah, uh, I think first I would say that uh, it's interesting. We did um, the last time that we did a, an economic a census among worker owners, so not just their firms, but the actual workers inside of worker co-ops. We found out that over ninety percent of them who were eligible to vote voted in not just the general elections, but also in their primaries. And so the the the, the knock-on effects. I don't want them to be lost of how important. Um, civic participation is that when you're when you when you have that awakened inside and you're you're acculturated into participating in everyday democracy inside your workplace that all of us and all the resources we're putting into getting out the vote and mobilizing people well if you just focus on actually building a culture of democracy then you don't need to put all that work out there and yet you can also you know have the the um the upfront advantage of actually developing assets for people in their communities that can be used in all different kinds of ways so i don't want that that piece to be lost secondly um i think more so than general public awareness, I've been thinking a lot more about, no, who are the, actually the specific actors within um, the, the the broader community, if we're thinking about ecosystem development, who, who are those people who need to be uh, aware and not just generally aware? Cooperative development is a very, very technical thing. And so it really takes having, you know, program officers and foundations, people who uh, are embedded in, I think, especially city government, but even the small business development centers, there's thousands of them all over the country, and the extent to which they're just really unfamiliar with these processes. Um, people who are who are underwriters inside of even traditional lenders, like banks, community banks, um, or or larger banks. So I, I think that there's a lot of awareness that's particular to the specific um, industries um, or sectors. And those are the people who I want to talk to most and make sure are connected um, and onboarded and aware uh, of, of what's needed um, to, to get over the, the next time. And I think for general audiences, just being plugged in and connected is, is, is helpful enough. You know, following groups um, like people on this panel on social media, um, subscribing to newsletters and things like that, because those opportunities for mobilization like Hillary's saying, you're not going to know about them without being connected to, uh, to you know, what's the latest happen inside of cooperative, the cooperative movement. Great. Thank you all so much. Thank you, Stacey, Sarah, Hillary, Esteban. Um, this has been just an amazing, fantastic conversation. Thank you so much to this audience. What a tremendous participation. Really appreciate everybody's comments and questions and um, enthusiasm for this conversation. Um, want to give a huge shout out to my colleagues, Tony Mastria and um, Matt Helmer, who are just like the, you know, the brains behind this whole operation, honestly. And, um, <laughs> and I, again, want to encourage everybody to please fill out uh, our feedback survey. We really love to hear from you. So please take a moment to feed that out, fill that out before you go and let us know what you think. Um, we will be doing more on employee ownership, so please stay tuned, and thanks, everybody, for joining us today. Bye-bye.